But this evening, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. But before we get into chapter 4, I just want to back up a little bit to verse 19. And we're just going to read through chapter 3, verse 19, down through the 11th verse of chapter 4. And then we'll come back and take a look at this. Uh, Remember, uh, chapter 3 was Samuel's first prophecy as a young man. And you recall that Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were very corrupt. They were very corrupt. And the Lord had pronounced a judgment upon Eli, or actually his two sons, because Eli didn't discipline his two sons, and instead he just kind of let them go and do whatever they wanted. Instead of disciplining them, he just he kind of checked out as a dad, and that's never a good thing to do as a parent. And, um, and as a result of that, because Eli wasn't listening to the Lord, he was no longer listening, God had to send a prophet, a man of God, to come and rebuke Eli, to tell him uh, the problem with his sons. And the problem with him, actually, because... His sons had a major problem, but he seemed to do nothing about it. And God pronounced a judgment upon his sons, that in one day they would both die. And in fact, throughout Eli's uh, lineage, really, uh, there wouldn't be any old man in his lineage. In fact, they would die short. um, They would die while they're young. And we're going to see in chapter 4 tonight, we're going to see that prophecy being fulfilled, at least initially, And so um, God says what he means, and he means what he says. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't mince words. And so let's pick up um, in chapter 3, verse 19. It says, so after God spoke to Samuel these same things, confirming to Samuel the things that the man of God had spoken of in verse 27 of chapter 2, that now, it says, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's all the way from the northern tip of Israel, all the way down to the southern portion of Israel, they knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. And it says, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek, and then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us. Emphasis mine. (laughs) From the hand of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh, and that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. But when, and when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. And now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? 
And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They died. Now let's go back to uh, chapter 3 there in the last few verses. Notice what it says in, in let me see here, um, in uh, chapter 3, in verse 21, notice what it says. It says, then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. The, the Lord had been absent for quite a while. And all of a sudden, now that God has a man in the tabernacle there that, that really loves him, that is there according to his word, dedicated to the Lord, now the Lord shows up because he knows that when he speaks, his words aren't just going to fall to the ground like they were with Eli. He knows that he can count on Samuel because he created him for this purpose. You know, for such a time as this in the life of Israel at this time, they needed a man of sterling character and and a man of devotion like Samuel, because the, the whole state of Israel, the whole country was floundering. Remember, we just came out of Judges, and you recall the ups and the downs that Israel went through. And the, these things are still occurring. Israel is not walking at its best right now. And there's a lot of corruption, and especially in the house of God, where the people ought to have been able to have come to worship the Lord, but now they're coming to very corrupt priests. Very corrupt priests. But notice what it says in verse 21 of chapter 3. It says, The Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord, notice, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word. And notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. I want you to notice the order in that because that's significant. Notice what it says. The Lord revealed himself first to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Notice that God's word became his word. Do you see that? First it was the Lord speaking to him, and then he's going to speak to the people. So Samuel's word wasn't a word of his own. It was the word of God spoken to him. And then Samuel, notice in verse 1, he speaks to all of Israel. And that is very important to see, because we cannot give except we receive it first. The message didn't originate from Samuel. It originated in the heart of God, and then from the heart of God to Samuel. And then Samuel, because he was a faithful man, God can entrust him with that message to give it to the people. Isn't it interesting that, that God would even use anybody? I find that very fascinating. You know, even in prayer, you know, can God get a lot more done without us? I believe he probably could. We're the biggest liability. But he loves it that way. God is not upset with you. In fact, he loves to... Have us a part of what he's doing. There's a fellowship there that he enjoys. And he enjoys the fact that he can whisper things into our heart and for us to hear him and say, Lord, I want to be a part of what you're a part of. I want to, be, I want to have a heart like yours. 
And when he does that work, it is such a wonderful thing, and our, our hearts begin to align with his. And that's really what it's all about. It's about the relationship. It's about the fellowship. It's not just about God needing foot soldiers. He could have created robots to get his work done, but there's something wonderful about him working in our hearts and, and, and wrestling with us at times, wrestling our will. And he gives us the free choice to have a free will. He doesn't override that at all, but isn't it wonderful when God is working and all of a sudden you come to the point in your own life and you're like, you know what, I'm done. I'm done wrestling with you, God. I'm done hearing what your word says and, and just kind of taking it in but not doing anything about it. Do you know if you do that, your life is going to be stagnant. It's going to be stale. If you find your Christianity stale, ask yourself the question, am I giving out what I've been given? Because first I have to receive from above and then I have to give that out. And when, and when that continues... Then there's life. There's life. And anything that we do for the Lord must be something that is given to us first that we might give it out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, said this. He said, For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Everything that we've been given has been given by the Lord, even the faith to believe in him. And can I boast then in any gift or anything that he's given me? When before, before him, I didn't have anything. But now with him, he's given certain things. He's given us a message. He's given us gifts, spiritual gifts. He's given us a voice to speak on his behalf. What a privilege that is. Think of it. I mean, more so than speaking for the president. I mean, I think of Kaylee McEnany, who she stands up. What a wonderful young lady she is. But she has just got so much zip, and I love that about her. And she's speaking on behalf of the president. But do you know that God wants to use us to speak on behalf of him, the king of kings, the lord of lords? More than any president, we get that privilege. But we need to be a conduit of God's word and his love and nothing else. And I want to show you a visual here because... This will make a lot of sense to you. This is a satellite photo of Israel, 580 miles from space. And I want you to notice up here, you can see the snow-capped Mount Hermon up here. And then there's a valley right here. There used to be a little lake here called Mount, or Lake Hula, but it's no longer there. But the Jordan River actually comes into the Sea of Galilee, which is right here. And, so, and there's, other, there's three other tributaries that feed into the Jordan up here, the Tobias and up here by Dan. Um, also was another tributary. And all this snow from, this, from Mount Hermon comes into these tributaries, emptying into the Jordan River, going down into the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is wonderfully fresh water. We baptized some folks in it just uh, you know, back in, in March, and it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful time. And the water's beautiful. Freshwater fish, you know, you can eat the fish. It's really a wonderful place. But then notice, it receives from above this crystal clear, pure water. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. In fact, when we're up at Dan, I have a little video. If I had time, I'd show it to you. But the water's raging down, and it's just crystal clear, and it's just coming through. It goes into the Jordan, empties out into the Sea of Galilee. And then what happens to the Sea of Galilee? It lets the water pass through the Jordan Valley, and it comes all the way down here to the Dead Sea. But when you get down to the, here, the Dead Sea, it's landlocked. Now, there's a lot of other reasons why this is so dead down here. You know, God did some amazing things. And, but the fact of the matter is, there's no outlet here. 
All the water comes down from Galilee, goes through the Jordan River, right through the center, these mountain ranges on each side. It comes down here, and it gets landlocked there, and there's nothing live there. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. It's 33% salt. 33%. Nothing can survive in it. I remember in 2011, when Pastor Jeff and I and the, the group of us went, there was a man from Pakistan who actually died. Right on the shore. We were right there when it happened. He went out in the water. He was an older man. He ingested some of the water by accident. He went into cardiac arrest. They tried to bring him back to life. But my point is, is not that so much. But the fact is, there's nothing that is alive down here because it's landlocked. But notice the Sea of Galilee. It's full of life. It's teeming with life. Why? Because it receives from above the Mount Hermon, the waters that melt. It goes through the Sea of Galilee and it gives out. And see, this is a great... The geography of Israel is a wonderful example, a pictorial example of the way you and I should be. If I'm always receiving and receiving and receiving and never do anything about it, just kind of going home and not speaking to anybody about Jesus, I become like this, the Dead Sea. But when my life is, I'm receiving, as, I'm receiving all the time, but I'm also giving out, your life is going to be much more vibrant. You're going to have a much more, a greater relationship with the Lord. And as a result of that, people are going to get blessed, you're going to get blessed, and God can entrust you with even more. To whom much is given, much is required, right? And so when we receive, don't just receive it and hold it in. Give it out so that you will be like the Sea of Galilee, teeming with life, receiving from above, giving out from underneath. Don't be like the Dead Sea, where you receive and receive and receive and don't do anything. I would encourage you to, to, to consider that. But the reason I bring that up is because of what it says here. Notice that the word of God came to Samuel. And Samuel was faithful to deliver that message. It just went right through him. He was like the Sea of Galilee. Receiving the message, giving it out. And how important is that for all of us? But notice, it says that, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And Aphek is a, a town that is due west of Shiloh. And in this place, in Shiloh, remember, was the tabernacle. But now the Philistines are gathering in Aphek, which is in their land, uh, along where the Philistines were. And it's interesting, this word Ebenezer actually means stone of help. That's literally what the name means, Ebenezer. Remember, and come thou fount of every blessing, here I lay my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, the hymn that we sing. That's what it means. In fact, it, it defines for itself that that's what it is, the stone of help. And we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, um, Israel is going to be defeated a couple times here. We're going to see that in chapter 4. We've already read some of it already. But in 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, Israel is finally going to get the victory and Samuel's going to set up a stone, and he's going to call it Ebenezer because he's going to realize the Lord has helped us. The Lord has helped us. And he's going to reverse that, that bad uh, defeat that they received earlier. But notice, the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they enjoined the battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the, of, of, of the field, or in the field. And you've got to ask yourself, the armies, you know, Israel defeated by its enemies? Why is that? Why is it that God would allow his own people to be defeated by their perennial enemy, the, the Philistines? 
Yes, they were. They were defeated twice. And they even bring out the Ark of the Covenant, which we're going to see. They're going to bring out the Ark, and they're going to hope to, to gain victory by it. But we have to remember something, that God hates sin. He hates sin, and he's no respecter of persons. And even though they were slack in it, God used his people, remember, to root out those seven pagan idolatrous nations when they came out of, uh, out of Egypt. He brought them, he dispossessed those people in the land of Canaan at the time. He said, go in and wipe out everything, right? So God does that. He uses his own people to do that. However, when his own people were in gross sin and, and unrepentant, God used pagan nations and the Philistines to come against his own people. It, it just shows you that he is not a respecter of persons. He'll use his people to, to judge others. He'll also use others to judge his people if they're not walking with him. And for you and I, we can be chastened. And when we are, we need to consider where we've gone wrong. He brought the king of Assyria against the northern ten tribes, remember, in 722 B.C. He also brought Babylon against Judah in 586 B.C. And it's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 23, he even called Babylon the hammer of the whole earth. He called Babylon, this pagan nation, the hammer of the whole earth. And he even called it, in Jeremiah 51, verse 20, he says, You are my battle axe and my weapon of war. He said that of Babylon, you are my battle axe and weapons of war. For with you, I will break the nation in pieces. With you, I will destroy kingdoms. And he's speaking to Babylon. With you, I will break in pieces the horse and its rider. With you, I will break in pieces the chariot and its rider. With you, I will break in pieces man and woman. With you, I will break in pieces old and young. With you, I will break in pieces the young man and the maiden. With you, I also will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you, I will break in pieces the farmer and his yoke of oxen. With you, I will break in pieces governors and rulers, and I will repay Babylon. Notice, he's going to use them. He's, God's going to use Babylon to bring judgment on other nations, including his own people. But are they guiltless? Are they off free at that point? No, he says, but I will repay Babylon. See, they, they're doing it of their own nasty heart. Do you understand? God knows what they're going to do. He knows what's in their heart, and he can use them to bring chastisement or even judgment upon other nations. But he holds them accountable for their own actions. He doesn't cause them to do it. Do you understand that? Because God does not make anybody do anything. He could if he wanted to, but he chooses not to. He chooses not to. And we also see in the first century A.D., God brought who against Israel? He brought Rome. And in 70 A.D., he allowed his own people to be destroyed by a nation that was so pagan, their leader was identifying himself as God, being God himself. Filthy was the Roman Empire. And yet God would use them to chasten his people? It hardly, it doesn't seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem right at all. But God does these things. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons. And he hates sin. He hates sin. Whether it's in those who have despised him, or even those in his own people. Now, thank God, you and I have been saved by Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ. Does God pour out his judgment on us now, the church? Does he do that? 
We are chastened, aren't we? You can be chastened, but that does, that's not necessarily God's judgment. But when God has poured out his judgment upon his son once and for all, that's why you and I have such a wonderful relationship with the Lord based on the scriptures, because that's what the scriptures say. He paid the price. So he doesn't need to judge us any longer. And notice that the Philistines killed about 4,000 men. 4,000 men. And I wonder if their Jewish ancestors had done what God had told them to do. This problem wouldn't exist. Remember, when he brought them into the land, he told them to go into the land and destroy everything. Man, woman, child, everything. But they failed to do it. Even in Joshua's time, they went in to take portions of the land, and they didn't completely drive out the enemy. God told them to do it, and yet they didn't do it. And as a result of that, the people afterward, the Jews and the, you know, who grown up and the, the, the ancestors as they come along, they're having to deal with the problem that shouldn't have been. Does that make sense? They shouldn't have had to deal with the Philistines at this time because their, their ancestors, their, their forefathers, should have taken care of that problem. Do you see how just a little bit of disobedience, how it's just, it's, it's just like a cascade and it just goes on down to our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, our great-great-grandkids. Sometimes those things happen. And that's why sin is such a big deal. That's why we have to take uh, heed to ourselves and not allow these things to have dominion over us. So in verse 3 it says, And when the people had gone into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? You see the tone in that? Why has God defeated us? Before, today, before the Philistines. Notice they blame God for their defeat. Was it God's fault that they were defeated, or was it their own fault? Let me suggest to you, it was their own fault. Because by this time, they had gotten so far away from the Lord, it wasn't God's fault. But isn't that true that, you know, God and the devil get blamed for a lot of things when it's usually our own fault? When we get into trouble... We blame it on God or we blame it on the devil. Remember the old phrase, the devil made me do it? Probably not. It's probably just you. Me and my own rebellion. I, you know, I, I don't even want to imagine what it would be like being tempted by the devil himself. We can be tempted by demons, and many of you have been, but can you imagine being tempted by the one who tempted Jesus in the desert? This one. Can you imagine being tempted by him? Oh my. You better fall on your face. And you better start praying. Right? The greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But notice, the heart of man always blames others before it will look at itself. And it started in the very beginning. You remember in Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Genesis, that God says, who told you that you were naked? Because God had spoken to Adam, Adam, where are you? And he goes, I was hiding because I was naked. And God says, oh, who told you that you were naked? something happened? Of course, God knows what happened, but he's drawing, he's drawing Adam out. God knew very well what happened, but he wanted Adam to confess what had happened. What happened, Adam? Well, the blame game begins. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave to me. See, this is marriage counseling right here. The woman you gave to me, Lord, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. 
And the Lord said to the woman, can you see this? Hello, hello, hello. You know, you got the man. What did you do? Well, it's the woman you gave me. And he comes to the woman, what? Uh, and the God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, ah, oh, the serpent made me do it. The devil made me do it. So now you got Adam blaming her and she blaming the serpent. That's, that's exactly what we do today. We never take, we never own anything. Politicians very rarely own anything. They'll deny straight truth. It's a wonder how that happens. But the Lord certainly allowed this to happen because he saw that the hearts of the Israelites had gone far from him and they broke his commandments. They were worthy of these things, of being chastened by God, of losing some battles because of their sin. What I think is interesting is as we've been in Revelation we're going to be coming upon the 16th chapter in a couple of weeks, but one of the, the third bold judgment, which is the, the last uh, series of bold judgments on the earth during the Great Tribulation period, the third one, it says, The angel poured out his bowl on the waters and the springs of water. They became his blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous. Notice this. The angels are saying this about people on the earth after God is beginning to judge really heavily in these last seven uh, judgments. And the angels say, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Do you see that? It is their just due. They had it coming. See, nobody likes to talk like that. But even the angels during the tribulation saying, Lord, they are what you've done is right and holy and righteous because they had what was coming to them. And do you think that that makes God happy? Do you think that that breaks his heart? You'd better believe it breaks his heart. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He would much rather have people live, obey and live. He'd much rather have that, right? And notice what it says. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. True and righteous are your judgments. And then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And notice, and men were scorched with great heat. And what did they do? They fell on their faces and gave glory to God and said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinful man. No, what does it say? It says that they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. And so the children of Israel, they had their just due. And notice what they said back in verse 3 in our text tonight. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of God from Shiloh to us, that when it went it, underline or over, circle the word it, because you're going to find them using the, these pronouns. <laughs> Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it, circle that, comes among us, circle this, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They're using the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm, aren't they? Like a rabbit's foot. If you remember when you had rabbit's foot, guys, when you were little, maybe you had a rabbit's foot, a lucky rabbit's foot, you'd stick it in your pocket. Nothing's supposed to happen to you if you have a, your lucky rabbit's foot. There are many little things like that. But they kept it like a talisman against evil. As long as we have the Ark of the Covenant, boy, we're good. As long as we have that, then, then, then God is with us. But God would not allow the Ark of the Covenant or anything else to become a good luck charm for the children of Israel. 
Think of how the children of Israel's hearts would be and how much they would be deceived if God allowed them to win this battle. As they went into the battle with the Ark of the Covenant and God allowed them to win, can you imagine how deceived they would be? They would think the Ark of the Covenant is what did it. We brought it, we brought it to ourselves, and, and, and now we're going to be delivered. And God wouldn't do it. They'd be putting their trust in the Ark rather than the God of the Ark. It's important for us to do. There should be nothing in the way. They were very superstitious. Superstition is a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, the fear of the unknown. It's trust in magic or chance or a false conception of causation. Do you know anybody who is superstitious? There's a lot of superstition. I remember when we were over in Bulgaria, the people over there, just like they are here, are very superstitious. But superstition is misplaced trust and devotion, and it exposes our unbelief and our lack of trust, our lack of faith in the Lord. And we see this kind of thing happening in the Word of God all over the place. And God didn't condone it at all, but we see it when the shadow of Peter passing by would save the sick. Was it Peter's shadow that really got the job done, or was it the faith in the person? God even God allowed that, but what, what was Peter some kind of special guy? Or men throwing Jonah overboard because he, he was a bad omen. It was a very superstitious thing. If, if this guy, if the, we're having this bad storm, let's throw him over and everything will be good. I'd like to read to you a, a short uh, devotion by William MacDonald. And he says, I've heard that one of the earliest versions of the English Bible translated this verse, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a lucky fellow. And that's the translation of the verse. Perhaps lucky at that time had a different meaning. At any rate, we are glad that later translators removed Joseph from the realm of luck. For the child of God, there is no luck. His life is controlled, guarded, planned by a loving Heavenly Father. Nothing happens to him by chance. And that being so, it is inconsistent for a Christian to wish good luck to someone else. Nor should he say, I lucked out. Such expressions are a practical denial of the truth of divine providence. The unbelieving world associates various things with good luck. Uh, with good luck. Uh, a rabbit's foot, a wishbone, a four-leaf clover, a horseshoe, always with the points pointing upward so the luck won't spill out. Men cross their fingers and knock on wood as if those actions could affect events favorably or avert misfortune. The same people associate other things with bad luck. A black cat, Friday the 13th, walking under a ladder, the number 13 on a room, or, the floor of, or, the fir, or, or, um, or on the floor of a building. It's sad to think of people living in bondage to such superstitions, a bondage that is needless and fruitless. And Isaiah it says, God threatened punishment for those in Judah who, it seems, were worshiping the God of chance. But you, who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, we cannot be positive as to the particular sin involved, but it sounds suspiciously as if the people were bringing offerings to idols that were associated with luck and chance, and God hated it, and he still does. Have you ever found yourself making those kind of comments, knock on wood, you know, good luck? And we, we say them, and, I, and I, I say them sometimes because it's just something I grew up with. 
But I would encourage you, and certainly not to be legalistic about this, okay? God is, you're not going to go to hell for saying good luck to somebody, right? You only go to hell if you, re- you reject Christ to your last day, right? But think about those kinds of things that are just built into your nature. And, and maybe pray about, Lord, help me to unlearn those things. Because of what I know the truth to be, it's not by chance. You know, everything is ordered by you. I don't need to say good luck. I don't say God bless you. You know, I don't need to say those things. I don't need to knock on wood. And you, you find yourself doing those things because of your old, you know, just your history, your old man, the stuff that you've done. I love what he goes on finally. He says, what confidence it gives us to know that we are not the helpless pawns of blind chance or of the rolling of cosmic dice or of lady luck. Everything in life is planned. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. For us, it is our father, not fate. Christ, not chance. And love, not luck. I like that. But we're going to see that the Israelites were... They, were, they had some superstition in them, still getting Egypt out of them. And certainly the Philistines, we'll see a little bit later, they were very much into, uh, they were very superstitious. And God was not going to be one-upped by them bringing the Ark of the Covenant and to have them put all their faith and trust in that rather than him. We mustn't allow anything to be held in reverence over God. No picture, no article, Nothing, no physical thing in our life, no relic should ever get in the way of our true fellowship with God. Amen? But the ark did become an, an idol to them. And he wasn't obligated to give them victory just because the ark of God was with him. God knew what was going to happen to that ark. And do you think for a moment he was concerned that it might be destroyed by the Philistines? God was in control even when the Philistines thought they had control. God was in very much in control. And he can take care of what he needs. He's not lacking in resources. What does it say in Psalm 50? For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And all they that dwell therein. That means everything, right? He doesn't, he's got resources that we can't possibly understand. But notice in verse 4, it says that the men, the, the people sent to Shiloh... So here they are at Ebenezer, and they send back to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, these two corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. (laughs) And I find this very interesting. What an interesting picture this is. Here they've got this holy box, this Ark of the Covenant, this most holy of objects for the Jews, and yet it is overseen by two of the most corrupt individuals in Israel. You see the, the discrepancy there, the dichotomy that, that it gives here, the two different pictures, the most holy thing with the most corrupt. And you know what? I wonder, God would have rather had the Ark in enemy hands than the Ark to be in the hands of those that should have known better. These two men who should have known better. And this is why God would allow the Philistines to put the ark on a wooden cart. He wouldn't allow the Israelites to do it, but he would allow the Philistines in their ignorance to put that cart on a to put that ark on a wooden cart and have it driven by cows. But when Israel tried to do that, you remember when David tried to do that later on, it cost a man his life. And then David thought about it and then he looked into the scriptures and he's like, "You know what? We did this whole thing wrong." 
we were fo- so, you know, thinking that maybe God had changed. You know, we heard about them bringing the ark on the cart with the cows. That's a great and convenient way to get things done, isn't it? Great and convenient. Well, is worship ever really convenient? Real worship is never convenient. It's never convenient. Because when I'm really worshiping, there's a sacrifice involved, usually. It could be a sacrifice of praise. It could be a sacrifice of my finances. It could be a sacrifice of my time. A sacrifice of everything about me. There may be, um, you know, God is, um, is amazing. But he wouldn't allow them to get away with it. Notice verse 5. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Their worship was shallow, but in, and they depended uh, independent upon the ark. And God could have delivered them. Couldn't he have delivered them without the ark? Did they really need to bring the ark? I think God would have much rather had sincere hearts there at the battle site, you know, there in Ebenezer, and for them to all to get on their knees and say, Lord, we have sinned a great sin. We have been playing games with you. Lord, forgive us. And he could have wiped out those guys without even them doing anything about it. He did it before. He'll do it in their history later on without them having to lift a finger. God could have done it. He didn't need the ark. They needed the ark. He didn't need it because their trust was misplaced in an object rather than the God of the object. So it says in verse 6, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord, notice, the ark of Jehovah had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Isn't it interesting that the enemies of God have a more of a reverence for God than the people of God? That's really what this is. They're like, oh, this, this God is you know, terrible and awesome. And yet the children of Israel are like yawning and going, you know, and not repenting. There's no fear left in them anymore. You know, fear is a wonderful thing. A reverence. It is good to fear God. And that fear can mean two different things, and you know this. It can be a reverence, and it can be real fear, like you're scared. And I think both of those are good. I think we should fear God in the sense of reverencing Him, because if we don't do that, then we will fear Him. We will fear Him. If we don't know Him, He is to be feared, because there's a judge of all the earth. Now, He loves people. But I can either fall on the rock and be saved, or the rock can fall on me and I can be destroyed. And most of us, thank God, have fallen on the rock. We've been saved, right? So it's good. Notice in verse 8, Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Lowercase g. Gods, really? Well, the, the Philistines were polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. And so they don't, they don't even know who this god is. But whoever he is, he demands respect because he's done amazing things. They've heard the stories. Actually, they're not stories. They've heard the history. Right? They thought it was the gods, but it was God, Jehovah. Notice, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so now they're trying to have a pep rally to really encourage themselves. 
So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Notice, and every man fled to his tent. There was a great slaughter. There fell 30,000 footmen, foot soldiers. And so this is 30,000 more than the 4,000 that had died earlier. Now you have 34,000 Israelites that had been killed by this perennial enemy of Israel. These Philistines came from the island of Crete. They were a non-Semitic people. They were the enemy of Israel. Like I said, they came from Crete. And they came from Crete, and they went down into the Mediterranean. They came down to Africa. They came down to Egypt. The Egyptians kicked them out of their land, and so they settled up on the coast where you and I know Israel to be, and that's where they stayed. These were non-Semitic people. And the reason they call them non-Semitic is because they didn't come from Shem. Remember Noah and then Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Anyone who is Semitic, a Semitic people is a line of people that comes specifically from Shem. We know that to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, those are Semitic peoples. But the people like from Ham, those were the Egyptians and other Arabs, Right? The Hamites, they called them, Hamitic. But these people were non-Semitic. They didn't come from the line of Shem. And they just happened to be the perennial enemy of Israel. In Genesis 10, in the table of nations, you can see that, actually. It says that this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then, it's, and then it says, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And then it says, Mizraim, in verse 13, says, begat Ludim, Emimim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. These were from the tribe of Ham. They were non-Semitic peoples, and they were the perennial enemy of Israel. And it wasn't until David's ministry that finally he subdued the Philistines once and for all. But now they are a problem, again, because their forefathers didn't do what God had told them to do. Disobedience always yields these things. Whenever we're disobedient, it's always someone else is going to pay, either ourselves or someone else. But notice in verse 11 it says, And also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons, Eli, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And this was the worst thing that could have happened to the Jewish people. This was their prized possession, the ark of the covenant. And notice this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that we saw in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, verse 27 through 36, the, the man of God came to Eli and told him, that his line, the, arm, the strength of his line, his specific line, would fail. And God confirmed it, and he says, and by the way, this is a sign unto you, in one day both of your sons are going to die, and here they are, they both died. Both of them died. Little did Eli know that he also would die the same day, but that was his decision. He took... He, he actually, when he heard about his sons being dead, we'll read this later, that he, he fell off the back of the place that he was sitting, and he was 98 years old and pretty heavy, and so and he couldn't see because he was so old. When he heard about the ark, he just basically committed suicide. He just fell right over. But it wasn't God's judgment. He took that upon himself. The judgment was on his two sons. Eli could have lived, who knows, a few more years, 
Maybe another year, maybe another few months. We don't really know. But that was something he took upon himself. So in verse 12 it says, Then a man of God, a man of Benjamin, actually ran from the uh, battle line the same day, and he, and he came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, which was a sign of grief in those days. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching. And you can imagine, he remembered as his sons took the ark of Shiloh and, and went out to Ebenezer, Eli is probably just sitting there, barely can see himself because of his age, old and heavy, and he's sitting there by the, the tabernacle in his chair there, and he's watching for the road with whatever he can see because he knows in the back of his heart, you know what, I don't think my sons are coming home from this one. So he's waiting, and finally this young man from Benjamin who had escaped from the front line, he comes, and he came to Eli, and there he was sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, notice, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Notice, the ark of God. He, he probably knew that his sons had what was coming to them. His heart really wasn't toward his sons. You'll see that later. He knew that their time was going to come. But the Ark of the Covenant was something that really his heart trembled for. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And then verse 14, when Eli heard the, the noise of the cry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And then the man, verse 16, said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, well, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken, has been captured. It's interesting, we, we know in other places in the Word of God, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, that Shiloh was ultimately going to be destroyed by the Philistines. There's not much mention in the Bible concerning it. There's a couple places. Here's one of them in, Jer in Jeremiah 7, verse 12. It says, when God is speaking to um, Jeremiah, he says, But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. He allowed the enemies of Israel to totally destroy Shiloh. And in Jeremiah 26, verse 4, it says, God is speaking out of the cities of Judah, and he says, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them out, but you have not heeded, then I will cause, or then I will make this house like Shiloh. So here he's setting a comparison. He says, I'm going to do to this, these places just like I did in Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Speaking of Jerusalem, he's going to make it just like Shiloh that the Philistines destroyed. And notice verse 18, and it happened when he had made mention of the ark of God. Notice it wasn't his two sons. When he heard about his two sons dying, any father would naturally be brokenhearted about that. But, you know, I think in Eli's heart, he's like, you know what, they had it coming, and the Lord told me it was going to happen. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God. When that happened, huh, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. It said, now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife. So Hophni and Phinehas had wives, and, they had, and uh, Phinehas' uh, wife was pregnant. 
She was due to be delivered, it says. And when she heard the news that the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. Can you imagine this, ladies? You're, you know, in this, in this culture, the men were everything. They were the, you know, they were held in high esteem. And they're the providers of the home. You know, these ladies didn't go to college and didn't have a degree and didn't have any, you know, way to make a living for themselves. They had to work really hard now if they lost a husband or an old, you know, their firstborn son. They had a lot of work to do. But notice, when she heard the news that the ark was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and she gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear. For you have borne a son, but she did not answer, nor did she regard it. So she passes away during childbirth, being so distraught and, and on the verge, you know, and hearing this horrible news, thank God she was about to be delivered because who knows, sometimes a grief of a woman can cause even a child to miscarry if there's a lot of grief, that, that those things can happen. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it, and she died. But then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. That's exactly what that word means, Ichabod. She named him after what had happened in Israel, this horrible event, the ark being taken. It means no glory or inglorious. The glory has departed and they don't have the benefit of history like you and I did at that time. They thought to themselves, okay, the enemy of our enemy has taken our, the thing that's most precious to us. And what are they going to do to it? Most enemies would take the box, break it up, smash it up, put it in the fire. They had no idea that God was in control of the Philistines. In fact, we're going to look at next week when, when it goes to these different towns of the Philistines that God really judges them and the ark of God becomes like a hot potato. And it's kind of interesting that it just kind of goes around to all these different cities and just wipes them right out. God just brings heavy judgments in there. And I don't mean to laugh about this because, you know, it's horrible, the things they went through. But it's just, it's, it's kind of interesting how the Lord says, and the judgment of God was really heavy in that town. You know, it was like, like he just really poured it on for their stealing of the ark. But no glory. The glory had departed because the ark of God had been captured. And it's amazing, isn't it? Now, now these, these uh, prophecies begin to come to pass. The ark of God is captured. And next week when we look at chapter 5, and, and really chapters 4 through chapter 7 really outline for us the, the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's really a fascinating thing. I'll show you a map next week of the travels this thing went. And it was uh, spent seven years with the Philistines and then around 20 years in the house of Abinadab. So the children of Israel have been without the Ark for you know, 20, 20 years and seven months at least. Until David. So it's sitting there in the house of Abinadab there in, um, in Beth Shemesh. And it's sitting there. It 
Meanwhile, Saul comes to power. Then David is anointed king. And it was David who decided, I want to bring that ark from Abinadab. It should be here with us. It should be in the center of Jerusalem. And you recall what happened because of the story, because of what had happened with them bringing the, the Philistines, putting that ark on a cart pulled by oxen. They thought how convenient that would be to bring it from Abinadab's house. Just put it on a cart. It's convenient. And then men die as a result of that. And then David was afraid of the Lord, it says. And then he goes and he searches the scriptures. He talks the, to the Levites. and He says, you guys should have taken it. Prepare yourself and let's do it the right way. And so he does. And what a great thing it was when they finally bring the ark. You know, the, the Levites grab that, those poles and they stick them on their shoulders. And the other guys, you know, there's four of them. And they're carrying that thing and they're doing it the right way. And David is there dancing before the ark. You know, I would have loved, I, I just, when I get to glory, I just want to say, Lord, can we just rewind the tape? Can we just scrub that video backwards to about that time? I want to see David. I want to see him dancing before the Lord. He didn't even have a shirt on. He just had his, you know, uh, something, he had something on his, you know, lower parts, but he was just so enthralled, so excited. And you know, there's something about that that's really challenging, isn't it? To worship the Lord with that abandonment. Something that's kind of missing today. I would encourage you to let your heart get kind of challenged by that. You know, we don't have to be so stoic when we worship. If it's genuine, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being excited about Jesus. In fact, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. People in stadiums will, you know, obviously there's order. We have to have order. But you know what? We ought to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> People in stadiums are rooting for their team. They got paint all over their face and they're, they got beer and they're just screaming. They're hoarse the next day. They go into work and they can't even talk. They're tired. They're hungover. Not that we should drink, of course, but they're, they're, they're just, they've, they're, they spent themselves the night before. And yet the God of Israel, the God of all creation, our Savior, and again, not to make anybody feel awkward tonight, but just think about that. Think about your worship of the Lord. Let it be free. You know, don't worry. If it gets really out of hand, we'll, we'll talk about it. But you know what? I don't think we have to worry about that. You know, if you want to raise your hand and sing with all your might, you do it. Because chances are you'll encourage somebody next to you thinking, I should be doing that too. After all, what has God done in my life? You know, we need to lighten up. You know, worshiping of God is not a mausoleum. I want to give it to him. He deserves it. He deserves our worship. Amen? Amen. Be encouraged by this. And, and it's just wonderful to see how gracious God is with his people. He's always been gracious. But let your heart be challenged in worship too. Sound good? Let's pray. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for tonight. And Lord... As we consider the lives of Hophni and Phinehas and them just going through the motions, Lord, just a dead worship, Father, I pray that you would stir within the church here at Calvary Chapel, Lord.
Help us not to worry too much, Lord. I, I doubt that we would have to reel things back in, God, but help us not to be inhibited, Lord, to be real. And Lord, I pray that you would stir within us again uh, a real joy, a real exuberance, a, a real, a real something real, not anything phony, God. We, don't, we, don't, we can't make anything happen. We don't want to make anything happen. We just want to be genuine. We want you to set us free. If there's, if there's real joy in our heart, Lord, help us to, help us to show that. Wherever we're at, whether we're in our car, uh, wherever we're at, Lord, help us to show that joy, express that wonderful sense of forgiveness. Lord, the sense that you're coming soon for us, and Lord, how we can't wait to see you face to face. Lord, we pray that you do the work in us. Revive us again, God. Help us to be aware of our own sin. Help us to be quick to come to you with it. And help us to crawl up in your lap, so to speak, Lord. And just have you speak those words of love to us, Lord. To not be inhibited any longer by anything, Lord. Help us just to be ourselves in your presence. To be like kids again. Lord, would you give us that childlikeness again. And Lord, the older we are, the less likely we're going to want to do that. But Lord, help us to be genuine before you. Especially privately, God, when, we can, when nobody's looking, Lord. May we be like David, who could close the curtains if we have to and dance before all, all of you with our might, Lord, to, to worship you. And even when we get together, Lord, inspire us, encourage us, Lord, not in some kind of falseness ever, God, but just genuine, genuine thanksgiving. And Lord, as we come upon Thanksgiving in November, God, may this be the best Thanksgiving we've ever experienced in our history of our country. Lord, we've had a very tough year. And Lord, I don't know, I can probably speak for all of us, Lord. We're broken. We're frustrated. We're even a little bit angry. And we're hurt, God. Would you show up and pour out your spirit upon us? Fill this place again with your spirit, God. Fill our hearts with a sense of gratitude, with a sense of worship, God. Would you restore to the men in the fellowship, Lord, that, that willingness to be the heads of their homes, Lord, to, be, to not settle for anything less. God, to be warriors. To be men of God. Would you do that work in us, Lord? Help us, Jesus Christ. We are desperate for you. We need you more than ever. Please shine upon your church, God. Not just here at Calvary, but all the churches in the area, God. Shine upon us again. Forgive us for all the sins that we've committed. Lord, as we come upon an election, Lord, we know that we deserve nothing. We deserve nothing, but God, in your grace, would you please shine upon this land again. Restore, renew us, revive us, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.